0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Tracksmith, a proudly independent running brand that makes high-performance products for real-world athletes. Or as founder Matt Taylor likes to put it, amateurs.
1: We really go back to the original roots of the word amateur, and it comes from meaning for the love you're running because you love it. It has nothing to do with how fast you are, how many miles you run. Running becomes something that, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you start thinking about, okay, what am I gonna do today? What's my run or what's my workout?
0: Matt was a competitive runner in high school and college. Later, after years of working in the running industry, he recognized that companies had forgotten about the athletes who make up the heart of the sport. He created Tracksmith in 2014. Opening up shop right along the Boston Marathon route, and building a team made up of passionate runners. From the get-go, they've crafted exceptional technical apparel with a classic New England aesthetic.
1: We put a lot of focus on material selection and material science. And you know, merino wool is a, is a perfect example. It is an amazing performance fabric. It's soft, it's moisture-wicking, it keeps you cool, the greatest attribute of merino for a runner is that
0: it literally doesn't smell. But not all merino wool is the same. For Tracksmith products, Matt's team selected a unique and extraordinarily lightweight blend, and then they put it to the test in the way that only an authentic crew of runners could.
1: I actually made everyone on the team wear the exact same shirt for two weeks every run. Some people were running, you know, 80 miles a week, some were running 30, but you had to wear the same shirt every time you ran. No washing, and at the end of the two weeks, the the Merino literally did not retain any of the odor that you would normally have in a technical
0: tee. Tracksmith's shorts, tops, and jackets don't look or perform like anything you see in the running market these days, which is by design. And it's a big reason the brand has earned a dedicated following among, well, amateurs.
1: People really appreciate the care and the attention to detail. The best for us is when someone will write in to us and say, I didn't know what to make of you at first, and now your product's the only product I run in.
0: Right now, Tracksmith is offering outside podcast listeners $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. Go to tracksmith.com outside and enter the code OUTSIDEPOD at checkout. That's tracksmith.com outside and code OUTSIDEPOD. All one word. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. When Kara Goucher decided to run the Leadville Trail Marathon in the Colorado Rockies last summer, she figured it would be a fun challenge. She was a world-class distance runner. With two Olympics under her belt and top three finishes at major races, including the Boston and New York marathons. Sure, she was 40, no longer as fast as she once was, and the entire Leadville course was above 10,000 feet. But still, she was a professional runner. She thought, how hard could it be?
2: And yeah, I just went for it, and it was horrible.
0: Kara actually came in a totally respectable fifth place, but she says it was the most difficult competition of her life. She had trouble with the altitude and threw up multiple times. But despite that, she loved it. This was mostly because of the way everyone involved with the event treated her.
2: I love the running community, track, roads, everything, but I have never experienced anything like that where no one said to me, oh you went out a little hard, "Ah, oh, you thought you could win. Nobody, the stuff that I thought people were going to say, they were like None of that ever happened. It was all just about, I can't believe you did this. This It's so awesome. Blah, 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 blah. You know, like you did so great and we're so happy to have you. And nobody made a comment about all my bad mistakes and stupid moves. It was all positive. It was amazing.
0: If Kara sounds unusually excited about people being nice to her, that's because that kind of positivity hasn't always featured prominently in her career, especially in recent years. In 2015, She went public with allegations that her former coach at the Nike Oregon Project, Alberto Salazar, had skirted anti-doping rules. Her comments were explosive in the track world. Salazar has been a huge figure in running since the 70s, both as an athlete and a coach. And Kara, who had once been a rising star at Nike, suddenly found herself on the outs with a lot of people. She was mercilessly harassed online by trolls and accused of lying. She also lost some friends. For years, nothing came of her allegations. Then, last fall, the U.S. anti-doping agency banned Salazar from coaching for four years after concluding that he had in fact broken doping rules. And yet, Kara has continued to be a target of criticism. A lot of people would wither under that kind of negative attention, but instead, Kara has just become more outspoken, raising questions about the culture at Nike that enabled Salazar and about the company's overall treatment of female athletes. Outside contributor Stephanie Joyce talked to Kara earlier this year about how speaking up against the most powerful brand in running has shaped her career, and why she can't wait for her next trail race.
3: Kara joined the Nike Oregon Project back in 2004. At the time, it was only three years old, but it was already famous in the track world. It was not a great time for American distance running. No American had come close to winning anything for more than a decade. And Nike had decided that needed to change. It created the Oregon Project explicitly to create the next generation of great American distance runners. And Nike wanted Kara to be one of them, along with her husband, Adam, who was also a professional runner. Nike told them they'd have every
2: resource at their disposal. Like, you'll be getting a massage every week on us. You'll be seeing an active release therapist on us. We can, you know, study your mechanic mechanics. We can send you to any doctor. We can and it was just sort of like I remember being nervous to say yes because I felt like if we said yes to this and I still couldn't make it, then I had to just face the fact that like I just wasn't as good as I hoped I was. Kara
3: and Adam said yes. And in two thousand and four they moved out to Oregon and started training with Alberto Salazar. He was the brains behind the Oregon Project. And a legend. Salazar had won three consecutive New York marathons back in the 80s, the last American to win the race for more than two decades. He was already making a name for the Oregon Project with his unconventional training methods, like having athletes live in a house that simulated high-altitude
2: conditions. Kara felt lucky
3: to be training with him.
2: When I first joined, I didn't know him that well. He was really, really nice, but I was injured, and he was really excited to be coaching Adam. As I kind of started to rise up, we got really, really close. Um, I trusted him so much, and I've been very open that my father died when I was little, and he really filled that void for me you know like he is the person that I would go to with a lot of life stuff and of course looking back was that appropriate probably not but I really really like loved him and I loved his belief in me and I felt like long after running is over I will be going over to his house and my kids will be playing with his grandkids he was family he was absolutely family yeah In Kara's first couple of years
3: at the Oregon Project, she didn't make much of a splash. She was injured a lot and posting mediocre results. But then in 2007, she won bronze in the 10,000 meters at the World Championships. It was the first track medal for an American, male or female, in a long time. And it vaulted her into the spotlight. She had a few more impressive races and qualified for the 2008 Olympics. And suddenly, she was a star. She says executives at Nike, like then-CEO
2: Mark Parker, let her know it. Once you become a successful Nike athlete, that's when it changes. I mean, there's a PR firm churning out stories about you, so you're constantly on covers. You know, like I flew back from the New York City Marathon on the jet with Mark Parker. I flew back from the Beijing Olympics with Mark Parker on the bigger jet. Um, and it's it's kind of glamorous, right? Like you're, you can walk into any of these offices. You're constantly seeing other professional athletes. There's just sort of this it's almost like this weird sense of power to be high up at Nike. You know, like my, my picture was everywhere and um, it's, it's kind of intoxicating. I just really felt like, Oh yeah. Like this is where I'm going to be. They call it the Nike family. I'll always be in the Nike family. I really imagined that I'd go over for dinners at Alberto's house with my children. That's what I just thought my life would be like. And that's how close I felt to these people so sometimes when I'll see a photo or I'll like look at an old journal or something and then I just feel I feel sad for me that I thought that was a reality Um,
3: when did your relationship with Salazar when did that start to change for you when did when did you start to feel differently about him
2: I think Boston 2009 was really the first big, big break in our relationship. He was really, really disappointed in me. He felt like I didn't stick to the race plan. And and just to clarify, Boston 2009, you were,
3: you were the favorite to win that race. I was the
2: favorite to win um, and I finished third.
3: And tell me a little bit about that race. Tell me about what the plan was supposed to be and then
2: what actually happened. Okay, I, I get, often get emotional when I talk about this. So I'll try to keep it together. But um, the race strategy was don't make a move until you turn onto Boylston. So essentially waiting almost 26 miles <laughs> before you do anything. Um, but as the race was unfolding, it was so slow. And I started to like take note of how many women there were in that lead pack. And as the miles ticked on and no one was really falling off, I started to feel a little nervous that if I turn onto Boylston and there's 20 women still, maybe someone has a better kick than me. And um, we, we got to the Newton Hills and I felt like I could have run away, like I was pulling away and then I'd slow down and then I'd pull away and slow down. And so we got out of that and I just, I couldn't take it anymore. We had six miles to go and I just went for it. Um, But I went for it for about a half mile and then someone from the media truck warned me how fast I was running. And so I kind of slammed on the brakes a little bit and then basically just broke the wind for these two other women for six miles and then they ended up out kicking me. But the aftermath was not good amongst my team. It was... Me lying on a hotel room floor crying, my coach and my sports psychologist going over and over about how I messed up. Um, talks about flying to London because the London Marathon was six days later and trying to redeem myself. And it just it was the first time I was let know like a lot of money's been put into you and you didn't deliver. And um It it just, like, the whole feeling of it started to change from, like, nothing was good enough. No, I mean, unless I won a gold medal or won a major, it, it wasn't enough. It was, it was definitely, um, was just a time where I started to really not love running anymore. Kara
3: had planned to take some time off to get pregnant after Boston so she could be back in peak form for the 2012 Olympics. But she says she was so devastated by her performance in that race that she delayed until after the World Championships that year, hoping to redeem herself. Then, in January 2010, she got pregnant with her son, Colt. At the time, it was still pretty newsworthy when elite athletes trained through their pregnancies. And Kara says she discussed her plans with executives at Nike beforehand. The company didn't respond to requests for comment about what they agreed to. But Kara says she understood that so long as she continued to make appearances on behalf of Nike, she would keep getting paid. So it came as a huge surprise when the company suspended her contract while she was seven months pregnant.
2: I did 22 appearances during my pregnancy. In my mind, I'm, I'm upholding my end of the deal. And then I get a call from my financial advisor in the summer saying... Your quarterly payment is three weeks late. And I'm like, what? And it takes a week to find out I've been suspended for an indefinite amount of time.
3: No heads up.
2: No heads up. No notification. You know, the response was I I sort of remember that conversation, but there's nothing in writing. And this is where I first learned to sort of like fight. Like this is the first time I ever sort of like fought because I am a good girl. And I do what I'm told my whole life. I don't cause conflict. And that was the first time in my life where I was like, no, this is not right. Um, And so I have my son. There's no resolution. Um, I'm not getting paid. And I'm essentially told, you need to race because as soon as you race, we can at least stop the clock of between competitions. Because you haven't competed since world championships in 2009. So I wasn't healed and just started running and right before my first race my son had a lump on his neck and my husband and i go in and they um they give him a a scan so he's knocked out and they bring out his little limp body and they say he's going into emergency surgery there's there's something bad in his in his neck and He has surgery. He had a staph infection in his lymph node. Had it burst, he would have died. But he needs to stay in the hospital for at least two days to be monitored. And I I left to go to practice. Because no one said, you don't have to race this weekend. And of course, I didn't have to. But I felt like I had to. And I left my son in the hospital to go run. It was such a hard time because I was making choices that as a human I didn't like. Um, I still wasn't getting paid. And I just felt like I was going crazy. Like I actually felt like I was going crazy. Like, how is this okay? And I tried to get a lawyer and they would say, that's totally illegal. And then they'd say, well, it turns out you're contracted, so you actually don't qualify for normal rights. But the problem is that they were using my likeness to continue continue to sell their product. Because I was a contractor, I couldn't say, you guys aren't going to pay for me. Don't worry about it. I'm going to go to Socony for six months. Because then I, I'm breaching my contract with them. If I had known you're not going to get paid for a year... I still would have gotten pregnant, but nobody would have seen me. And I would have gone and spent time with my grandparents, who I love. And I would have spent time with my mom. And I would have done all of these things and lived a life that didn't have these other, you know, expectations and things tethering me back to the brand.
0: At the top of the episode... We heard from Tracksmith founder Matt Taylor about the performance staples Tracksmith makes for your life lived on the run. To develop new products, Matt relies on his team of passionate athletes, which includes elite middle distance runners Mary Kane and Nick Willis, who work full-time for Tracksmith even as they train for the Tokyo Olympics. This is a crew that knows how to focus on what matters, like the unique Italian nylon knit for their shorts or the antimicrobial finish on their soft and breathable merino wool tees. They also take advantage of their own running experiences to develop unexpected products, like the Falmouth short.
1: The inspiration came from my not-so-great experience running the steeplechase at the Penn Relays.
0: If you haven't heard of the Penn Relays, it's the oldest and largest track and field competition in the country. It's a wild event which is why it's often called the pen Relays Carnival.
1: I wore a longer pair of mesh shorts. And the first time through the water jump, the shorts got a little wet. The second time they were getting wetter and wetter and heavier and heavier. And I found myself constantly trying to pull them back up. And around the fourth lap, every time I approached the water jump, you could hear the chants of people going, long shorts, long shorts,
0: long shorts. Because what serious runner runs in long shorts, right? Well, Matt did and he figured others would too.
1: We wanted a short that maybe you could feel super comfortable you know hanging out at the beach for the day or going for a run and then meeting a friend for you know a cup of coffee and not be in your split shorts. The secret really is the fabric. It's this absolutely incredible fabric. It performs amazingly well but in a in a look and an aesthetic that you don't immediately go that's a running short.
0: Learn more about the Falmouth Shorts and all of Tracksmith's exceptional running apparel at tracksmith.com outside and enter the code outside pod at checkout for $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. That's tracksmith.com outside and code outside pod, all one word.
3: Six months after she gave birth, Kara ran the Boston Marathon again. She came in fifth and set a personal best. But she alleges that while she was training for the race, Salazar pressured her to take a thyroid medication that she hadn't been prescribed in order to lose weight. She says she didn't take it, and he denies the accusation, saying he would never ask an athlete to take a drug they hadn't been prescribed. But Kara says that incident made her reexamine other things that she claims to have seen during her
2: years with the Oregon Project. I witnessed stuff, getting IVs for hydration purposes and faking dehydration, like witnessing the creams and witnessing the testosterone cream and witnessing the syringes. No one actually put it in me, right? So it's really hard to, do, to describe. My best answer for people is if Adam wasn't in the picture, that could be my story. So
3: in 2011, you decide this is it. I'm done. You don't leave Nike, but you leave the Nike Oregon Project, the team that Alberto Salazar is coaching. And then in 2013, you decide to go to the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency to report concerns about Salazar. Why that moment? Why did you wait?
2: Um, well, when I left in 2011, I... I had a baby. I mean, he was not even quite a year when I left. Um, I'm in the Nike family. My contract is still ongoing. I had a line. Why did you leave Alberto? I had a baby and my life changed. I mean, I just, my life changed and we were no longer the right fit. Um, And I just sold that line forever. And... I mean, before the 2012 Olympics, I had reporters reaching out to me saying, like, we know why you really left. And I was like, I I would just, I wouldn't talk to anyone. I think being on that other Nike team and getting to know other athletes who were losing spots on Olympic teams to Salazar's athletes, that started to eat at me. And um, in 2013, we were in Colorado Springs training for the Boston Marathon and that's when Lance Armstrong sat down with Oprah. And afterwards, I saw Travis Tigert talking. And he started talking about threats he had gotten, death threats and stuff. And I was like, he, I, I remember thinking, he gets it. Travis Tigert, yeah. the head of the U.S. Anti-Doping the Agency. Yeah. the of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. I just remember Colt was like on my lap. And I looked over to him and I go, you get that guy. I'll go talk to you, Sada. So seeing somebody else say
3: you know i face threats every day but this is really important that's what motivated you to
2: yeah i mean honestly that's it because i felt like the risk was so big and i i mean i know how powerful nike is and then seeing travis talk openly about getting death threats and still pursuing it i was like okay there's like this guy gets it and there's really no excuse like my silence is allowing this to continue
3: Kara did share her concerns with USADA, but publicly, she didn't say anything. Then, in 2014, she didn't renew her contract with Nike. Instead, she signed with Skechers, and the startup women's running company Wazell. Not long after that, ProPublica and the BBC approached Adam for a story about alleged doping at the Oregon
2: Project. And Kara decided she wanted to go on the record, too. I always said, I'll never talk about it publicly until either there's a conclusion or my career is done. Um, And I mean, my first thought was to tell him, no, you can't, like, that is a deal breaker. But I also was kind of relieved to be able to stop telling this false narrative about like, oh, I just had a baby. And then, or why did you really leave Nike? Oh, well, I just want a new opportunity, you know, like. I was just tired. I knew it was it was always bubbling up. There was always threat someone threatening to do a story, and it was just like, I don't, I don't want to have to worry about this anymore. It I was kind of a relief to be able to think like, well, maybe we could say like, I left Nike because I didn't, I thought they were unethical, and I didn't want to represent them anymore. You know, it's like, did it's it, exhausting.
3: Did it feel like if someone else does the story, and you haven't spoken up at that point that it also implicates you that it makes you look really for sure and then I'm and then
2: I'm entering the conversations second tier on the defense instead of saying you know what let's do this but for sure I was like how's it gonna look when Adam says all this stuff happened and then I'm just quiet and I was the one that had the success of course that's gonna look so bad so that that definitely was part of it I was like that's gonna look really really bad and if I looking in I'd go well she definitely did something because she's just quiet and she's the one that ran so well right I mean it's just like logical so I was like man I mean I probably should just meet it head on and answer their questions head on
3: obviously you were aware of what some of the consequences of that would be how did what actually happened compare to what you expected
2: I expected like a few trolls to say, you know, she's a liar or she's jealous or Nike kicked her off the team, which is is not what happened. I chose to leave Nike. I have the documentation to prove that. So I expected a little bit of that, but I didn't expect this sweeping backlash and I didn't expect it would just split this community. People that were my friends. Now I'm the pariah, you know, (laughs) like I wasn't. I was not prepared for that. And I I just didn't, I wasn't ready for what a toll it would take on me emotionally, which in turn took a toll on me physically. And I mean, I I found out just how many people thought I had doped, which was really, really hard. I mean, people that I had like trained with and traveled with and been on teams with and it it was jarring. (laughs) And there were times where I was like, I shouldn't have done this, but I never said I regret it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like everything is more difficult now because now I'm not in the Nike family. Not only was I not in the Nike family, I was like, spoke out against it. And even then I still hadn't shared all of the, I never talked about the environment of the team. I never talked about that. I didn't get paid while I was pregnant. Like I hadn't shared all of these other things. It was just that I saw my coach and fellow athletes break anti-doping rules. That's what I saw.
3: It took more than four years for anything to come of the doping allegations. It wasn't until last fall, October 2019, that USADA suspended Salazar. Nike shut down the Oregon Project shortly after that. But in the meantime, Kara kept racing— After she left Nike, she and Adam moved back to Boulder so she could train with her college coaches. And she started prepping for the 2016 Olympic marathon trials. She was hoping for a spot on her third Olympic team. But she had some stiff competition, including her former Nike teammates, Amy Craig and Shalane Flanagan.
2: Even though I was 37, I was like, I might be in the best marathon shape of my life. Like, I have workouts I can compare it to. And I'm I'm exceeding anything I've ever done before. I didn't know for sure, but I felt like as long as I do my job and run like a steady, solid race, there aren't more than two people that will beat me.
3: Yeah. And so was there a moment in the actual race when you realized this isn't gonna happen?
2: Yeah. So the it was very, very hot that day. It was actually what's considered red flag conditions. Normally you wouldn't even run the race. So a lot of people, not just myself, had a last minute strategy change, which was two twenty nine to two thirty is gonna make the team. And I can't go with any early moves because heat stroke is like a real thing. And um so I felt very confident throughout the race because there were surges, but then those people would come back to us and um Amy Craig and Chalene had really gone for it. They had pressed ahead and they had separated themselves. Um, so I couldn't even see them anymore. But as more and more people fell away, it it was clear that it was myself and Desi for this third spot. And uh, Desi Linden. Desi Linden. And with about four miles to go, I just couldn't... She had started to slowly pull away and I just couldn't make anything happen. I really just... I almost started crying. I just couldn't believe it. I thought either I'll be in the top three or I'm going to be 20th and realize I was totally a pipe dream that I thought I was going to make this. It never entered my mind that it would be right there and that I wouldn't get it. It was either like I'm top three or I'm not even close. And it was it was very difficult to like get myself to finish that race. Like I wanted to to drop out like I really did. I was like. The minute I cross that line, it, it's, just, it's all over. It's like everything I've been dreaming of and everything I've fought through, it's just, it's done.
3: Kara gave an emotional interview after the race where she said the three women who beat her were simply better. But it might not actually have been that simple. Two of the women, Amy Craig and Shalane Flanagan, were wearing early prototypes of the Nike Vaporfly the controversial shoe that's been shown to make runners faster. Once again, Kara raised questions about something she saw as a potentially unfair advantage. And that did not go over well with everyone.
2: And it's hard for me to talk about this because people get really defensive because they love those two women, and I'm like, so do I. I like them. I respect them. One of them was one of my closest friends. I trained with her for two years. It's not personal. It's just facts. That they had equipment that has been proven in studies to, to give an advantage. And at the time, the rule stated that you couldn't have a shoe that gave you an advantage over someone else. A lot of people will say, that's disrespectful, you would even say that. and I, and I, Or they say, that was going to be your last race anyway. So does that mean I deserved it less? I mean, if I would have been top three, I, I earned it, right? I mean, like, they're mad at me. For even questioning, did I face a level playing field? Personally, it's been hell. It's kept me up at night, makes me think, what if? What if they hadn't been wearing those shoes? What if I was still with Nike and I had those shoes? I mean, do I deserve to be a three-time Olympian? I don't know. And that's part of the problem is I don't get to know. In January, World Athletics, which is the governing body
3: for track and field, made clear in a new rule that shoes like the Vaporfly could be used in competition. It was a huge disappointment to Kara, but she's had better luck pushing for change on other fronts. In May of last year, she and several other former Nike athletes spoke out in a New York Times op-ed about the company's practice of suspending female athletes' pay during pregnancy. And in response, the company announced changes, including promising not to end women's contracts if they get pregnant.
2: Careers are lasting longer and longer. So more we're going to see more and more. I mean, before people would be like, I'll be retired by the time I'm 30, I'll just wait. Well, now people's careers are going way into their 30s. So this is just a reality. More and more women are going to have children. And if we support them throughout it, maybe their career goes six years beyond having that child. But if we don't and they have to make sacrifices to their body, their career is only going to go for a year or two more. And so it just makes sense to address it and to deal with it and embrace it. Because if you want long careers, this is a topic that lots of women are going to face.
3: Yeah. When you first signed on with Nike, did you have a conversation
2: with them about what would happen if you got pregnant? My husband, who was my fiance at the time, brought it up. And I remember being embarrassed um he was like so like what happens if she gets pregnant and I remember like I shot him this look like I will kill you because I knew they didn't want to hear about that right I was young and I was like this won't affect me the fact that I'm here in this room right now is a big deal and God, why are you bringing up a baby, you know? And I mean, like, of course, now I'm like, God, Adam was just trying to protect me. He was thinking long term. But at the time, you know, and that's that's how it works. You feel so grateful for every little thing that I was just like, oh, my God, please don't talk about this.
3: These days, Kara is best known for her advocacy. But she hasn't stopped competing either. After the 2016 Olympic trials, she started training again for another road marathon. But she got injured, and she says her heart wasn't really in it. Then she turned 40, and suddenly she found herself looking at things differently. That's when she decided to enter a high-altitude
2: trail race. Honestly, turning 40 was like the best thing that ever happened to me. I was like, why am I worrying about these these definitions of success? Like, I don't want to stop running. I'm slower. Who cares? Like, honestly, it was like life-changing for me. And... There's so many avenues to explore in running and in endurance sport in general. And so I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna run the Leadville Marathon. Yeah, the Leadville Trail Marathon. Like, that sounds like a good idea. You know, I've heard of Leadville. I've, and I've always been like, could I do the Leadville 100 miler? Like, I, I knew there was no way I could do it right now. So I was like, well, I'll just, I'll do the marathon. I'll get my feet wet, you know. And I completely underestimated everything about it.
3: I mean, I think a lot of people think running is running is running. How different could trail running be? They're here?
2: completely different sports. I'm not a good trail runner, and it, I think it's funny because people were like, "Oh yeah, you're just gonna go over the trails and like rip it up." And I'm terrible. Um, okay. But I, that's an exaggeration. Well, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not good. But like, I'm not good on technical trail. I'm scared. I'm a shuffler. I'm like a marathon shuffler. And but it's so beautiful and different. And fun until I fall and it's just it's exciting and I just really want people to try trail running I think it can be really intimidating you look at these Instagram posts and they're like on a cliff and it's you know you're like I just jog around my neighborhood so like one of the things like my biggest missions right now is to like show people that you don't have to be hardcore but it's it's such a sense of accomplishment to like run up a trail and just turn around and look and it just makes you see the world through a totally different lens. And I guess I just want to keep having fun. And if, if if it sounds fun to go back and run a marathon, then I'll do that. But I think right now that's, I'm looking for new adventure. Yeah. It's been fun. Welcome
3: to trail running. Yeah,
2: thank you. You're welcome
3: to join me for any of my 18-minute uphill miles.
2: <laughs> that's one thing that you have to get used to, right? Is like, for so much of my life, my value was on my watch and that took a lot of getting used to of like I was out there for two and a half hours and I only ran X amount of miles or I ran a 22 minute mile or I you know ran because you're like hiking up this crazy hill and that was something that was like really hard for me to wrap my head around because since I was 12 my value was riding my log at night like did I hit my splits or not and you have to just let all of that go But once you do, there's something like super empowering about that because you're like, I'm here for the experience and I'm not validating myself through anything but the fact that I am doing it. It's really fun.
0: That's Kara Goucher, speaking with outside contributor Stephanie Joyce. Stephanie reported and produced this episode which was edited by me, Michael Roberts, with music by Robbie Carver. Stephanie also wrote a story about Kara for the May 2020 print edition of Outside. If you want to have Outside magazine delivered to your mailbox, you can subscribe now at a special discounted rate at outsideonline.com summerspecial summer special. Subscribing is also the best way to support this show. This episode was brought to you by Tracksmith a proudly independent running brand that makes high-performance products for real-world athletes. Right now, Tracksmith is offering outside podcast listeners $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. Go to tracksmith.com outside and enter the code OUTSIDEPOD at checkout. That's tracksmith.com outside and code OUTSIDEPOD. We'll be back next week.